Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome. My name is Dawson Church, and each week I overflow with enthusiasm as I share with you ideas on the leading edge of health and wellness and happiness. There is so much research coming out nowadays showing that many of the kinds of states of consciousness, of mind, of thought, of worldview, we used to think were just part of an abstract part of human experience are now having a concrete effect on our bodies and the world around us. I love reading the science. I love writing about the science, I love sharing the science, and there is so much here that you can do. So I want to urge you as you're listening today to not just tune in mentally and emotionally to what we're saying, also take notes and come up with an action plan. Leave our time together with what you will do, what you will apply in your life, ideas you can operationalize in your daily life that can make a difference because many of the things we talk about on the show can make an enormous difference to your levels of health and happiness. My guest today is Dr. Bernardo Castro. He is the executive director of the Essentia Foundation, and his work has been featured in many publications and places like Scientific American and Big Think. His most recent book is The Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality. For more information, go to his website, bernardocastrup.com. And I'm going to just spell that for you to make sure you get that right, okay? So Bernardo, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-O, Kastrup, A-A-S-T-R-U-P.com. And we're going to have a fascinating conversation about the nature of the reality we all inhabit and some of its surprising aspects. Welcome, Bernardo. My pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you. And so, you know, most people, when they even realize that a field like the one that you write about exists, are pretty startled. I mean, we think this is material reality. That's what is. And you argue in your papers and your books that there's far more to it than that, and that much of what we think of as material reality is actually created by our, our minds. Go and just share your, your best arguments for that hypothesis. The world that we consider to be the physical world, we sort of colloquially attribute qualities to it. We think the colors we see are out there, the flavors we taste are out there, but that is not the case. And this is not polemical, even under physicalism or materialism. This is the case that the world we experience is engendered, is created somehow inside our skull. So that's physicalism. Where my position and physicalism depart from one another is that according to physicalism, there is an abstract world out there, which our brains translate into colors and flavors and melodies and all that. But that abstract world out there is not essentially mental. And my position is there is an abstract, there, there is a world out there, all right, outside our individual personal minds. But that external world, although outside our personal minds, is itself 
also mental. It is constituted by transpersonal uh, mental states, which present themselves to our observation as the colors and flavors and sounds we perceive around us. And then what is the evidence that you have to show that that is in fact possible? Well, there are two lines of argument. One is logical, and that is that the physicalist postulate runs into a internal contradiction. There is nothing about the numbers we use to characterize the, the parameters of physicality, like mass, charge, momentum, geometrical relationships, frequency, amplitude. There is nothing about any of that in terms of which we could deduce the qualities of, of experience. That is called technically the hard problem of consciousness. So physicalism faces a wall, an impassable chasm that can't be crossed. So that alone should already get us to rethink our metaphysical assumptions. Now, the other line of argument is entirely empirical. It's based on experimental evidence. Uh, physicalism is based on what in physics is called physical realism, which is two beautiful words just to say that under physicalism, material objects should have a standalone existence. They should exist and have whatever properties they have, regardless of whether they are being observed or not. So your table should have a certain size and a certain weight, regardless of whether you are weighing it or looking at it or measuring. It. And it turns out that that's not the case. Uh, after a series of experiments over four decades, it's now there is now an extremely strong empirical case that all of the properties we call physical, they are the product of measurement, the product of observation. And therefore, material or physical objects and entities do not have a standalone reality. They are just the appearance of a deeper layer of, layer of reality, which is itself not physical. And I would say, well, it is mental and physicality is just what that mental layer of reality looks like when we observe it. So you mentioned four decades of experimentation. And of course, we have the double slit experiment going back 200 years showing the observer effect. What's the more recent evidence of that? So I'm not talking about the double slit experiment. And that's about 100 years, 200 years goes, to, <laughs> goes too far back. That would be before the origins of quantum mechanics in the early 20th century. But what I'm alluding to are quantum entanglement experiments that were initiated in the late 70s. They became very well known when Alain Aspect and his team in France carried out more sophisticated versions of those experiments in 1981 and 1982. And those were then progressively refined over four decades, culminating, I would say, there are very significant four recent experiments. One, I believe, is from 2007, which sort of outright discarded uh, physical realism. It was confirmed in a different way in 2010. And then there was a Dutch experiment in 2015 and one in the US, a large international collaboration in 2018. And that sort of drove the final nail in the coffin of physical realism. There is only one theoretical possibility that could, could maintain physical real realism, the notion that physical entities have standalone existence, but you have then to believe that every infinitesimal fraction of a second, countless gazillions of new physical universes pop into existence <laughs> for which we have absolutely zero uh, empirical evidence. You laugh, and it is laughable, you're correct to laugh, because it's it's like it defies plausibility in such a gigantic way, but it is the, the, the position put forward by famous, well-respected uh, physicists like uh, Sean Carroll, which goes to show how commitment to a certain metaphysical hypothesis, uh, like materialism or physicalism, can run so deep that otherwise brilliant people fail to hold on to a minimum 
sense of plausibility. Why do you think this idea is so scary to people? Even those physicists and certainly the skeptics and many ordinary people would find this hard to accept. Why, why is that notion so difficult for us to both grasp and why does it offend so many people? So what's the psychology behind this, right? I think there are two, there are two main lines of explanation, if you want to call it an explanation. One of them has to do with the new thought movement, the human potential movement, latched on this idea that reality is mental and then distorted it in so many different ways that it has left people very hesitant when it comes to sort of endorsing something that has become culturally associated with the new age and, and, and the idea that can make reality whatever you want, which is not an implication of what I'm putting forward. Uh, on the contrary, and then there is an external reality outside our individual minds. It's mental, but it's not your mind. It's not your wishing that will change the way the laws of nature unfold. But unfortunately, that's the association a lot of people have, and they hesitate going in that direction. It's a sort of, it's an emotional knee-jerk reaction that is motivated by cultural associations. The other one is harder to excuse. Materialism came to being as a Russell said uh, that materialism is a dogma meant to weaken another dogma. And that's the origin of materialism. In the beginning of science in the 17th, okay, 16th, 17th century, the church would burn scientists alive like it happened to Bruno in the year 1600. Um, so it, it became important for science to sort of carve out a space for itself. The church had domain over the soul, the psyche, or the mind. The Greek word psyche means both soul and mind. So the church had domain of that. So science had to carve out something else for it to do its work without the risk of being <laughs> burned alive at the stake. And Descartes did a great job. He separated it and created a form of dualism and said, okay, science is about this abstract entity called material or physical, which has none of the qualities of experience. It's completely abstract. You can't even visualize it. And the church deals with the soul. In other words, with concrete reality, the world we actually experience. And of course, the church thought, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> fine, go fool around in your sandbox of, sandbox of abstraction. And we don't care because we are dealing with the really <laughs> important things. But this metaphysical assumption has come to underlie a lot of scientific predictions. Now, those predictions don't depend on the metaphysics. Predictions are about how nature behaves, not what nature is. But culturally, we associate scientific predictions with this is metaphysics, not physics, the metaphysics of materialism. And uh, we thought at some point that by adopting materialism, this nihilistic, literally nihilistic metaphysical view, which reduces all qualities, everything that matters to side effects of pure abstraction, we thought we sort of insulated ourselves from being fooled because we have been fools before. We have been fools in the 15th and the 14th and all the way to antiquity. We have been fools thinking that somehow we were at the center of the universe, either literally or figuratively. And we fell flat on our faces multiple times. And this move of materialism is such an nihilistic move that it sort of gives you a guarantee that whatever happens, you can't be disappointed because you already believe in the worst possible scenario. And that makes you feel sort of protected from future disappointment. It's very difficult to depart from that and accept that, hey, after all, there may be meaning in this whole thing. Maybe we are not at the center of it in general, but we are certainly at the center 
of our own world. And we may be engulfed and surrounded by, by meaning. And that is scary for a whole lot of people. And it leads again to emotional knee-jerk reaction. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting how when confronted with scientific reality, people, even scientists sometimes, have really emotional reactions and so much of science is based on that and then you see new people come along and new new evidence and gradually things do change but one of the the papers I worked on many years ago Bernardo was uh, in 2015 I wrote a paper on change in medicine and what we found looking at various government reports was that the average discovery medical discovery takes 17 years to each patients so new cures discovered from laboratory to bedside takes an average of 17 years and four out of five of those advantages, those advances in medicine, never reach patients. Only one in five does. So in hospital, you're getting one fifth of 17-year-old science when you're treated. And so what people don't realize sometimes is how really, really resistant big systems in science, especially medicine, are to change. But I, the analogy I use to make this impactful to people is I say, if I gave you a cell phone, I said, here, here, here's a new cell phone. It's all yours. It's 17 years old and four-fifths of its features are disabled, how excited would you get? And we accept that when it comes to our bodies and our medical treatment. In some parts of our society, we see this very rapid adoption of new technology, new ideas. Google and Samsung and Apple all compete to adopt the best new features for their technology, for their laptops and their pads and their phones. And yet in some areas of science, things change really really, really slowly against entrenched opposition. And this is one of those areas, it's been interesting to me to see how the skeptics and the people who aren't able to make that shift are, uh, are so threatened by some of these ideas. So much misunderstand and misapply the word skepticism or the qualifier yes. skeptic, right? I am a skeptic. I am a skeptic of the mainstream metaphysical narrative that there is this totally abstract world out there that by some magic performed by the brain translates into the world I, the world I actually experience. I'm skeptical of that story. I think it's an exceedingly implausible story, internally inconsistent, and which flies in the face of the latest empirical evidence, both from physics and from the neuroscience science of consciousness. I see myself as the skeptic, but what we culturally now call skepticism is a complete belief, an irrational belief in the mainstream storyline at the cost of plausibility and reason and evidence, and a complete lack of willingness to entertain perhaps more plausible, more empirically substantiated alternatives. This is not skepticism, this is stupidity. It's, 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 it's fundamentalism of a different kind. Fundamentalism. Yeah. It's foolishness. Yeah. Now, I want to backtrack for a moment over here because I'm not familiar with that 2018 experiment you mentioned that was conclusive. Just go ahead and outline what that experiment was. Okay. Well, what you do is you produce two what we call particles. They're not particles at all, but I probably don't want to get into the details of what these things actually are. We call them particles. We produce two particles in a special way such that their behavior is correlated. In other words, uh, you can cannot describe the behavior of one particle independently of the other. The, the word we give to, to say this is, we say the particles are entangled. They're sort of locked up in a dance with one another. And now, after having produced these entangled particles, you shoot one of them in one direction and you shoot the other in another 
direction at very close to the speed of light. And while these particles are in flight, a computer will randomly select a specific measurement to make on one of them, like measuring the angular momentum in a certain direction out of countless possible directions. You don't need to understand what an angular momentum measurement is. It's just one of the physical characteristics that we assume the particle has, regardless of whether we are measuring it or not. And then this, this random choice of what to measure is made when the particles are already in flight. So they already are whatever they are under physicalism. And it turns out that what you measure about one directly correlates with the measurement you make about the other. In other words, what one particle is depends on what you choose to measure about the other. Now, that's contradictory with physicalist intuition. Physicalist intuition or materialist intuition is whatever the particles are, they are what they are, irrespective of what you choose to measure about them, right? Measurement simply discloses what the particles already were immediately prior to measurement. Measurement doesn't change the particles. It doesn't create anything. It just unveils a hidden reality that already had standalone existence prior to measurement. But it turns out that that's not what happened. What you choose to measure about one determines what the other turns out to be, even though you make both measurements uh, at the same time concurrently, and even though you only choose what to measure after the particles already exist and are already traveling. So what this shows you is that our intuition that physical properties exist in and of themselves out there is incorrect. The world as it is in and of itself, independent of our measuring of our observing it is not physical because physicality emerges upon measurement. I'm not denying that there is a world out there. There is a world out there that does not depend on measurement, but it isn't physical. Whatever it is, it is by definition not physical because what we call physicality is a product of what you choose to measure, the way you choose to look at the world. In other words, physicality is a superficial appearance of a deeper layer of reality that is itself non-physical. You can only escape this if you say, well, you know what? It only look like my choice of what to measure determines the physical properties of the particles. It only looks like that. Why? Because there are countless as new universes emerging every time I make a measurement, and we so happen to be in the one of them in which these correlations are observed. I mean, if you think this is plausible, you, I don't know, I mean, you got to be on some, speaking metaphorically, you got to be on drugs, you got to be a victim of some kind of cultural intoxication. <laughs> <laughs> to consider this plausible. <laughs> that is one we've been subject to for a long time. We're going to go to a break right now. For more on Bernardo's work, please check out his website, bernardocastrop.com. I'm your host, Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. For more on my new book, Bliss Brain, go to my website, blissbrain.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello, and welcome back to High Energy 
Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and each week on the show, we look at ideas and techniques that can improve your level of health and happiness. And I just urge you to listen, be inspired, and find ways of making shifts in your own personal reality, in your own personal life. There's so much out there now that science is showing us is possible and that much greater levels of health and happiness are possible than it, we used to imagine. I list a whole group of those in my new book, Bliss Brain, and you get a free copy at blissbrain.com. For more on Bernardo's work, go to his website, bernardocastrup.com. And the last part of that, his last name is K-A-S-T-R-U-P.com, bernardocastrup.com. Bernardo, I was telling you on the break that some of the ideas you're describing here take a lot of mental focus to wrap your mind around, like that, that study you just mentioned. And I wrote down something you said, which was that physicality is a representation of a deeper layer of reality, which is its, itself non-physical, it's mental. And what is then the nature of that deeper layer of reality, as far as you know? We are so sort of addicted to a certain metaphysical narrative, materialism, that simpler alternatives sound more complex just because we are not used to it. What I'm saying is that simple. All I'm saying is that the world is an appearance. On the other side of the world, from the one it presents to you, there is something that is just like you, mental. There is mental life behind the appearances that we call the physical world. Now, nature is showing this to us all the time. Look at yourself in the mirror if you are sad, and you may see tears flowing down your face, contorted facial muscles, a very physical appearance on the mirror. But that's just the appearance of what you feel from within, and that's your sadness, your despair. That's the reality as it is in itself. The tears and the contorted muscles on the mirror are the way that reality presents itself to observation from a certain perspective. I would say the same applies to the rest of the world. Your tears and your facial muscles are so-called material entities. So they are, they have a certain kinship with the rest of the so-called material universe. So if matter is an appearance of conscious inner life on the mirror, so it is uh, when it comes to the galaxies and galaxy clusters and black holes and stars and volcanoes and electric storms. Matter is always what mental inner life looks like when observed from the outside. So the world is essentially mental as it is in and of itself. But in the same way that when I'm sad, what you see is tears flowing down my face. When you look at the world, you don't see the mental states of the world directly. What you see is rocks, volcanoes, clouds, and so forth. And how might that perspective change the way you are, you act, and you think? It changes it. It changes just about everything. Um, under physicalism or materialism, I use these words interchangeably, what you see is what you get. The physical world isn't an appearance, isn't a superficial representation of a deeper reality in a dimension of depth. No, it's just all there is to it. The physical world isn't a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. It's not pointing at something behind itself. It's the end of the story. That's all there is to it. A rock is just a rock. Uh, but if you understand that the physical world is but an appearance, then there is a whole different and new dimension of depth and meaning that becomes applicable 
because now the world is something that you need to read and interpret and think about uh, and contemplate and meditate on because it's the appearance of a deeper, meaningful reality in a literal sense. The world literally means something in the same sense that words mean something that are not themselves words, if you know what I mean. The world is pointing at a mystery underlying itself and life becomes invested in meaning in that sense, literally. I know that there are studies done of um, people who have extraordinary experiences and so-called anomalous experiences, although they aren't anomalous in the sense that most people actually do have them. And these are experiences that they're, they're inexplicable in terms of that materialist worldview. Things like clairvoyance, telepathy, precognition, and there are a huge amount of experimental literature on all of these things. But a really cool study done, I know you're also involved with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and Cassie Deaton did a mammoth study published in 2018 and PLOS-1, and it showed that people who are in various kinds of mental states consistently, like meditators, uh, they have things start to shift for them, but they have many more of these kinds of experiences than non-meditators, for example. So in that sense, when we're changing our mental and emotional reality by becoming really calm in meditation, things around us start to change, especially in the quantity of these anomalous experiences that are observed. How does that fit in with your, your picture? Let, let me start with a quick disclaimer. I don't think we need evidence of an anomalous sort to discard materialism. I think to discard materialism, all we need is reason, logical thinking, and mainstream laboratory evidence from mainstream research institutes. That's all you need. And it's much more than enough. Having said that, of course, under idealism, there is a closer kinship between us and the world. Because you see, materialism says that consciousness, our mental inner life, our feelings, our perceptions, our thoughts, our insights, they are epiphenomenal. In other words, they are side effects of brain activity, of material stuff. So that which we identify with, which is what we feel, how we feel from within, that's what we consider to be ourselves. Under materialism, it doesn't even have standalone reality. In a sense, it doesn't really exist. It's, it's a kind of illusion in some sense, some weird sense of the word. And that sort of removes us from reality so drastically that it's, it becomes impossible to even think that there is some form of kinship between us and the world around us. We are sort of in exile, locked up in a cage of abstraction. Under idealism, the world is itself mental. It's not your mind. It's not your neighbor's mind. We are talking about transpersonal mental states, which from our perspective are objective. They are really out there and we can't change them simply by wishing them to be different, but they are mental. And in that sense, they are like us, mental too. And that certainly makes it less difficult to account for some types of anomalous experiences. I'm not saying that it's straightforward. I don't think it's, it is straightforward, but it becomes possible at a fundamental level. It's less of an intractable problem to account for telepathy or the sense of being stared at under idealism. Idealism doesn't magically make sense of all this, but it makes it plausible to go and look deeper into the problem. Yes, right. And it starts to give us, I think that science is starting to give us many more clues as to how these things are possible. 10, 20 years ago, we didn't have some of the experiments we have today. And so 
really what happens usually in medicine certainly is we observe something works and then it takes us a long time to figure out how something works. Penicillin, it was 34 years before we figured out how it worked. Aspirin was 100 years before we figured out how it worked. We knew that it worked first. You first of all, observe the effects, you observe the phenomena. Later on, you go on to explain how that thing works. And we're just starting to figure these things out now. And there's a big lag there. It's really intriguing that mainstream physics is now beginning to give us some answers about the possible ways in which these mind world interactions happen that are really able to encompass phenomena that otherwise seem very mysterious to people. The question is, to what extent is this a scientific question and to what extent is it a philosophical question? Science studies the behavior of nature, not what nature is. And philosophy comes in and metaphysics comes in and tries to approach the question of what nature is. But of course, to answer what nature is, you take your clues from how nature behaves. So philosophy is informed by science and philosophy can also inform science because if your philosophy is telling us that certain things are fundamentally impossible, why will you bother investigating? But if philosophy tells you, well, it mi there might be something there because we think the world is mental and not material, then you get the funding and you get the people, the serious good researchers who go looking to that and that may unveil certain behaviors of nature that may be very useful to know that may help us uh, cure people and solve some of our greatest problems. I think in the next section, we'll get into the whole idea of paradigms and paradigm shifts and where we are now in the paradigm and, and a possible paradigm shift. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. For more on Bernardo's work, go to his website, bernardocastrip.com. His most recent book is The Idea of the World. And I wanted to say that if you have enjoyed this and if you order his book, which I encourage you to do, go ahead and leave him a review because for us authors, getting those five-star reviews is just the biggest compliment you can pay us. So go ahead. If you like his work, leave him a five-star review. Leaving a five-star review for your favorite authors is something you can do in concrete gratitude for the huge amount of work that goes into our books. So please stay tuned. We're going to a break right now. We'll be right back after that. Hello and welcome back. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. For more on Bernardo's work, please go to his website, bernardocastrip.com. And his most recent book is called The Idea of the World. And again, please do go and leave him a review if you like his work. Those five-star reviews are bread and butter to us as authors. My most recent book is called Bliss Brain. You can get a free copy of the hardcover at blissbrain.com. Thank you so much for the people who have shared already and left reviews for the books. Again, it's a really meaningful way you can express your gratitude. Also, use the meditations on blissbrain.com. There are eight of them, and we've shown in MRI trials they produce substantial changes to brain function within a month. So all of that and more at blissbrain.com. And again, Bernardo's work at Bernardo Castrup, K-A-S-T-R-U-P, Castrup.com. Bernardo, what we're talking about here is a huge shift in the worldview of a branch of science. And that's a paradigm shift. That's a change in the whole way that a branch of science sees itself 
and sees its work. I, what you're talking about here sounds like one of those tectonic changes, in this case in physics, right? Well, physics and philosophy and uh, the, our entire epistemology, all of our knowledge sort of finds a different place to be positioned. The idea of paradigm shifts, I mean, this was introduced in science by Thomas Kuhn in the 60s with his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And the basic notion is that scientific activity and philosophical activity as well, they are never really completely neutral and objective. Every Everything we do has a certain theory-ladenness to it. So even the data we gather, and we think it's completely neutral and objective data, now built into the data or in the process of gathering the data, there is already an exercise in interpretation. We are already interpreting reality in a certain way, which makes us choose what data to collect and how to interpret that data. And we think it's entirely objective, while it's not. And what, what is a constant across paradigms is that the world is what it is now. We are living in a true world. We just interpret it in different ways in the development, the evolution of history. And under a new paradigm, although the world is the same, we will look at it with completely different eyes and it will feel like it's a totally different world. But it is indeed the world it has always been from the early days of history. I was so struck by a finding of a study I read that Dean Radin reported, and it looked at which branches of science use randomized controlled trials and which branches of science don't. And for example, in chemistry, only 3% of studies are randomized controlled trials. And the assumption is that, well, this is a chemical reaction. We don't need a problem of any kind over here. This is just material, objective reality over here. Whereas in psychology studies, around half of them have a control group of some kind or another. So in psychology, we say, well, you know, the placebo effect, it could be therapist allegiance. It could be any one of a number of factors. We need a control group. But we regard, you know, physics and chemistry, the hard sciences as it being so unlikely that the world view of the observer could affect the results. And only 3% of those trials was there a, a control condition of any kind. You're right about how it affects the way we structure our experiments to look for what we expect to find. <laughs> Absolutely. And we are becoming more aware of it. Look, doesn't require the magic of some kind of observer physically changing reality. It can be a lot more prosaic stuff. P hacking. P is a statistical figure that allows you to determine whether your experimental result is statistically significant or not. If it is significant, people take it seriously. If the p-value is less than a certain threshold, then nobody takes it seriously. And you can hack that p-value just by changing your experimental methodology or your data filters in seemingly very benign ways. But that's the difference between being able to claim this is a real effect or no, there is nothing there. I mean, and, and the paradigm cl completely clouds our, our notion of plausibility. If you look at what's happening in mainstream neuroscience of consciousness, now around effects of psychedelics. We have figured out that psychedelics only reduce brain activity. They don't increase brain activity anywhere. All psychedelics only reduce brain activity, even though you're having the most mind-boggling experience of your life, which makes it at least difficult to justify that experience is somehow created by brain activity. Because how can you be having the intenser, richer experience of your life while your brain is effectively going to sleep? If you look at what mainstream neuroscience is trying to do now to account for the psychedelic experience in some other way, it defies plausibility. It is shameful, if, if you ask me. It's the hypothesis that they put forward now is that psychedelics don't increase brain activity. Indeed, they only reduce. But psychedelics increase the amount of brain noise by 0.005 in a scale from 0 to 100. Wow. And they hope will somehow account for the psychedelic experience under physicalism. And that's because 
there is, they cross the threshold of statistical significance. But some people who have a psychedelic trip and have the full effect actually have less brain noise. So how do you account for those? And come on, 0.005 in a scale of 0 to 100, and you want me to take this seriously? I mean, what you see there, this stuff is published because our paradigm now tells us that of all the possible explanations, this farce is the least implausible one because it's the one that complies with the paradigm. So we throw reason and our sense of plausibility out to the window in order to try to defend the paradigm. And historically, that's what has always happened until it can't happen anymore. Do you have trouble getting your papers published sometimes? Uh, I've stopped uh, trying to, <laughs> to publish academic papers. I've published a whole lot until 2020, I think, and I got tired of the exercise. So I haven't tried for the past year and a half uh, or so. Uh, now I managed to publish papers in some main journals, like the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Ultimately, reason will speak louder. If you have a good story uh, and you articulate your story well and you have good data, you will get to publish. Things are, th there is no conspiracy. There is only a stigmergy, a cultural tendency to go in a certain direction. But sometimes the evidence is just too strong to not publish. Now, publishing is one thing, but mobilizing the consensus towards the direction where you're going, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I know it well. I, uh, my, my, my average paper gets rejected three times. I just stick to mainstream journals as well. I don't try. And I, I, you know, if, if, one, if, one I, if one of my papers appears in Explore or the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, it's been rejected five times already by mainstream, it eventually will, will show up there, but I'm trying for the, the, uh, the mainstream journals first. But you're right, you know, in, in the middle of this kind of change, it's, it's also very confusing for the average person to try and make up what's going on, because there's so much upheaval with the old guard defending their, their point of view, these new anomalous findings that don't fit. And then you're trying to navigate this and trying to of course, speak to the people who are the old guard, because they generally are in the positions of institutional power, who decide if anything gets done, like new research. So it's really interesting, uh, in the middle of this all this paradigm turmoil, it's an interesting point, place to be. Maybe we'll talk about that more in the next segment. We're going to go to a break right now. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. My amazing guest today is Bernardo Castrop. Find out more about his work at bernardocastrop.com. His most recent book is called The Idea of the World. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. I'm so glad you're giving yourself a break from all of the wild stuff going on out there in the world to really focus on you, your consciousness, and the tools that you can use to really shift the way you are. For more on those tools, go to the website for my new book, Bliss Brain. It's just blissbrain.com. And for more on Bernardo's work, go to his website, bernardocastrip.com. Again, his most recent book is called The Idea of the World. The Idea of the World. And again, that appeal for you to go on amazon.com and give him a five-star review if you like the book and his work speaks to you. It's really important to do that. When you hit a thousand five-star reviews, Amazon starts to really promote that book to other people of like mind. So it's really worth you going on Amazon and clicking that five-star link, leaving a brief review and letting us know that you, this is important work to you. It's a way of sharing with other people. Bernardo, as you've had these epiphanies over the course of the last 
couple of decades. How have these changed the way you live your life, your professional life, your personal life, your personal habits, your relationships? What's changed for you as a result of these insights? Oh, a lot. Uh, it's difficult to say what is precisely a result of what these things tend to sort of be interconnected in non-trivial ways. But uh, when I was very young, I mean, my first job was at CERN in Switzerland, the big uh, uh, accelerator. I was working on the Atlas detector. Um, and I was like 22 when I landed there. I started there on Monday. I had defended my thesis on Friday. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, and it, was, it was a great sense of mystery I had there because there is a lot of mystery in the very small, you know, the tiny little constituents of the physical world. That's It's a mysterious realm, all the very small. And when I was at CERN in my day hours, I, I had contact with that mystery because I was studying the very small. And then there is the mystery of the very big, of the cosmos, of the galaxy clusters and quasars and black holes and the, the dark matter and energy. Great mystery there. But there seemed to be, under materialism at least, a little mystery in our ordinary reality. The stuff that is neither very small nor very big. In other words, the other people, the trees, the, the cars, the streets, you know, the waterfalls and lakes and sea and all that. And understanding now, as I do, that materialism is an untenable story and that the mo most plausible alternative we have is that the world is essentially mental and therefore physicality is just a superficial appearance. It has brought that sense of mystery back to my ordinary life, not only at CERN, not only looking through a telescope, but when I go walk in the forest, when I sit on a rock, when I take a bath under a waterfall, when I dive in the sea, when I walk on the sand, uh, mysteries all over, because I feel that I am immersed in that, that extra dimension of mentality that is somehow behind and underlying the physical world around me and which is touching me at all times. And, and that's an enormous change. You know, being aware of and experiencing transcendent states, uh, I measure them with, with MRIs. I measure monks and nuns usually or people who move into these states, what happens in their brains. But subjectively, they have these experiences of moving to these elevated emotional and spiritual states, which are for them radically transformative and of course wind up having a radical effect on their brains. So there are those states as well in which reality seems nothing like it does to people who aren't in those states. I think it's it would otherwise be a relatively common occurrence that people sort of bump into these transcendent states. And because I think it's part of what being alive and part of reality entails. You bump into reality, all right? You're immersed in it. So you're bound to suddenly every now and then find yourself in some of those transcendent states. What happens, however, is that today, most people, when they sort of put their toes through that door and they are about to have a transcendent state, the intellectual story they tell themselves is so strong that stuff cannot happen that they dismiss it before it actually happens. So they they do not welcome that, that gestalt of experiences that correspond to the transcendent state because they don't give themselves intellectual permission to experience that. It's an, an automatic intellectual intellect-driven reaction to keep to keep that out because it doesn't match with the narrative you tell yourself about what is supposed to be possible and what's not supposed to be possible. And when you sort of start running a different intellectual story that does give you intellectual permission to put your toe in that water and have a look there because for all you know it might actually be something um, if we as a culture give ourselves intellectual permission to do that I think you would find that transcendent experiences are much more common than you would believe based on the eight o'clock news today <laughs> yes we don't hear much about transcendent experiences on the eight o'clock news in fact the less transcendent it is 
<laughs> the more likely it is to be selected by the news anchor for reporting. So uh, there's a real focus on popular culture content that keeps us at that level of thinking the world's material and thinking it's a threat and really degrades our, our, our personal experience. What you're doing here is you're opening up space for us to think in new ways and really question our worldview and our, our way of experiencing the world. And I so appreciate that about your work. If you ask me, why do I do what I do? The honest answer is because I don't have any other option. If I don't do what I do, something happens to me and I no longer can sleep and I develop tremendous anxiety. Everything goes wrong. So I, I'm not really a altruistic hero, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. I'm not doing this out of the kindness of my heart. It's just something I need to do and I stop fighting against this need. It's what nature wants to do through me. Fine, I do it. I don't take responsibility for the end result. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I did my part. It's not my problem. Um, but uh, if I sort of abstract from what I just told you, I would love to see that result, that people mm. do give themselves intellectual permission to explore more plausible narratives about what might be going on than the absolutely failed narrative that we still maintain as our mainstream against all reason, against all evidence. Bernardo, thank you so much. And so claim that higher narrative that Bernardo is recommending. Thank you so much for spending this time with us this, this hour. So appreciate your making time in your day to give yourself this experience. Be back next time, next week with more in this exciting series. Thanks again.